Book 2, Chapter 1 of The Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood. Book 2, The Art Critic, 1842-1860. Chapter 1. Turner and the Ancients, 1842-1844. Recording by Graham Arrowsmith. The neighbour, or the Oxonian friend, who climbed the steps of the Herne Hill house and called upon Mrs Ruskin in the autumn and winter of 1842, would learn that Mr John was hard at work in his own study overhead. Those were its windows on the second floor, looking out upon the front garden. The big dormer window above was his bedroom, from which he had his grand view of lowland and far horizon and unconfined sky comparatively clear of London smoke. In the study itself, screened from the road by russet foliage and thick evergreens, great things were going on. But Mr John could be interrupted, would come running lightly downstairs, with both hands out to greet the visitor, would show the pictures, eagerly demonstrating the beauties of the last new Turners, Erin Breitstein and Lucerne, just acquired and anticipating the sunset glories and mountain gloom of the Goldau and Dazio Grande, which the great artist was realising for him from sketches he had chosen at Queen Anne Street. He was very busy, but never too busy to see his friends, writing a book. And, the visitor gone, he would run up to his room and his writing. In the afternoon, his careful mother would turn him out for a tramp round the Norwood lanes. He might look in at the Poussins and Claudes of the Dulwich Gallery, or for a longer excursion, go over to Mr Windus and his room full of Turner drawings, or sit to George Richmond for the portrait at full length with desk and portfolio and Mont Blanc in the background. Dinner over, another hour or two's writing, and early to bed, after finishing his chapter with a flourish of eloquence, to be read next morning at breakfast to father and mother and Mary. The vivid descriptions of scenes yet fresh in their memory, or of pictures they treasured, the thoughts, as they used to be called, allusions to sincere beliefs and cherished hopes, never failed to win the praise that pleased the young writer most, in happy tears of unrestrained emotion. These old-fashioned folk had not learnt the trick of nil admirari, quite honestly, they would say, with the German musician, when I hear good music, then I must always weep. We can look into the little study and see what this writing was that went on so busily and steadily. It was the long-meditated defence of Turner, provoked by Blackwood's magazine six years before, encouraged by Carlyle's heroes, and necessitated by the silence on this topic of the more enlightened leaders of thought in an age of connoisseurship and cant. And as the winter ran out, he was ending his work, happy in the applause of his little domestic circle, and conscious that he was preaching the crusade of sincerity, the cause of justice for the greatest landscape artist of any age, and justice at the hands of a heedless public, for the glorious works of the supreme artist of the universe. Let our young painters, he concluded, 
go humbly to nature, rejecting nothing, selecting nothing, and scorning nothing, in spite of academic theorists, and in time we should have a school of landscape worthy of the inspiration they would find. There was his book, the title of it, Turner and the Ancients. Before publishing, to get more experienced criticism than that of the breakfast table, he submitted it to his friend, W. H. Harrison. The title, it seemed, was not explicit enough, and after debate they substituted modern painters, their superiority in the art of landscape painting to all the ancient masters, proved by examples of the true, the beautiful, and the intellectual, from the works of modern artists, especially from those of J. M. W. Turner, Esquire, R.A. And as the severe tone of many remarks was felt to be hardly supported by the age and standing of so young an author, he was content to sign himself a graduate of Oxford. The book was spoken of, but no part of the copy shown to John Murray, who said he would prefer something about German art. It found immediate acceptance with Messrs Smith and Elder. Young Ruskin had been doing business for seven years past with that firm. He was well known to them as one of the most rising youths of the time, and their own literary editor, Mr Harrison, was his private mentor, who revised his proofs and inserted the punctuation which he usually indicated only by dashes. His dealings with the publishers were generally conducted through his father, who made very fair terms for him, as things went then. In May 1843, Modern Painters, Volume 1, was published, and it was soon the talk of the art world. It was meant to be audacious, and naturally created a storm. The free criticisms of public favourites made an impression, not because they were put into strong language, for the tone of the press was stronger then than it is now as a whole, but because they were backed up by illustration and argument. It was evident that the author knew something of his subject, even if he were all wrong in his conclusions. He could not be neglected, though he might be protested against, decried, controverted. Artists especially, who do not usually see their works as others see them, and are not accustomed to think of themselves and their school as mere dots and spangles in a perspective of history, could not be entirely content to be classed as Turner's satellites. And while the book contained something that promised to suit every kind of reader, everyone found something to shock him. Critics were scandalised at the depreciation of Claude. The religious were outraged at the comparison of Turner, in a passage omitted from later editions, to the angel of the sun in the apocalypse. But the descriptive passages were such as had never appeared before in prose, and the obvious usefulness of the analyses of natural form and effect made many an artist read on, while he shook his head. Some readily owed their obligation to the new teacher. Holland, for one, wrote to Harrison that he meant to paint the better for the snubbing he had got. Of such as reviewed the book adversely in Blackwood and the Athenaeum, not one undertook to refute it seriously. They merely attacked a detail here and there, which the author discussed in two or three replies, with a patience that showed how confident he was in his position. He had the good word of some of the best judges of literature. Modern painters lay on Roger's table, and Tennyson, who a few years before had beaten young Ruskin out of the field of poetry, was so taken with it that he wrote to his publisher to borrow it for him as he longed very much to see it, but could not afford to buy it. 
Sir Henry Taylor wrote to Aubrey de Vere, the poet, begging him to read a book which seems to me to be far more deeply founded in its criticism of art than any other that I have met with. Written with great power and eloquence, and a spirit of the most diligent investigation, I am told that the author's name is Ruskin, and that he was considered at college as an odd sort of man who would never do anything. A second edition appeared within twelve months. When the secret of the Oxford graduate leaked out, as it did very soon, through the proud father, Mr. John was lionised. During the winter of 1843 he met celebrities at fashionable dinner tables, and now that his parents were established in their grander house on Denmark Hill, they could duly return the hospitalities of the great world. It was one very satisfactory result of the success that the father was more or less converted to Turnerism, and lined his walls with Turner drawings, which became the great attraction of the house far outshining its seven acres of garden and orchard and shrubbery, and the ampler air of cultured ease. For a gift to his son, he bought The Slave Ship, one of Turner's latest and most disputed works, and he was all eagerness to see the next volume in preparation. It was intended to carry on the discussion of truth, with further illustrations of mountain form, trees and skies. And so, in May 1844, they all went away again that the artist-author might prepare drawings for his plates. He was going to begin with the geology and botany of Chamonix and work through the Alps eastward. At Chamonix they had the good fortune to meet with Joseph Coutet, a superannuated guide whom they engaged to accompany the eager but inexperienced mountaineer. Coutet was one of those men of natural ability and kindliness whose friendship is worth more than much intercourse with worldly celebrities, and for many years afterwards Ruskin had the advantage of his care, of something more than mere attendance. At any rate, under such guidance, he could climb where he pleased, free from the feeling that people at home were anxious about him. He was not unadventurous in his scramblings, but with no ambition to get to the top of everything. He wanted to observe the aspects of mountain form and his careful outlines, slightly coloured, as his manner then was, and never aiming at picturesque treatment, record the structure of the rocks and the state of the snow with more than photographic accuracy. A photograph often confuses the eye with unnecessary detail. These drawings seized the leading lines, the important features, the interesting points. For example, in his Matterhorn, a drawing of 1849, as Wimper remarks in Scrambles Among the Alps, there are particulars noted which the mere sketcher neglects, but the climber finds out, on closer intercourse, to be the essential facts of the mountain's anatomy. All this is not picture-making, but it is a valuable contribution and preliminary to criticism. From Chamonix this year they went to Simplon and met J.D. Forbes, the geologist whose viscous theory of glaciers Ruskin adopted and defended with warmth later on, and to the Bell Alp, long before it had been made a place of popular resort by Professor Tyndall's notice. The panorama of the Simplon from the Bell Alp is to be found in the St George's Ruskin Museum at Sheffield as a record of his draftsmanship in this period. Thence to Zermatt with Osborne Gordon. Zermatt too, unknown to the fashionable tourist and innocent of hotel luxuries. 
It is curious that, at first sight, he did not care for the Matterhorn. It was entirely unlike his ideal of a mountain. It was not at all like Cumberland, but in a very few years he had come to love the Alps for their own sake, and we find him regretting at Ambleside the colour and light of Switzerland, the mountain glory which our humbler scenery cannot match. And yet he came back to it for a home, not ill-content. After another visit to Chamonix, he crossed France to Paris, where something awaited him that upset all his plans, and turned his energies into an unexpected channel. End of Book 2, Chapter 1 Recording by Graham Arrowsmith <laughs>